welcome to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. My name's Kelly. And I'm Dermot. And we're here to tell you everything and more that you could ever want to know about James Joyce's Ulysses. And we're going to start this week with something very special. A role play! Oh, great. Okay, Dermot, we are in an elevator, and the elevator's going real fast. Mm -hmm. And I'm the publisher, and you're a young upstart author. Pitch mm -hmm. me your novel. Oh, so an elevator pitch. Yeah, okay. Mm, yeah, very clever. Well All right, done. here we go. Well, my, my book is about uh, a day in the life of Dublin over a 24-hour period. Oh, great. People love that Irish stuff. Go on. And get <laughs> well, a, a tie-in with Guinness. <laughs> oh, and uh, yeah, and it's basically it retells the Homer's Odyssey. So ah, all of the okay. stuff that happens in Homer's Odyssey happens in this 24-hour period in Dublin. Do you think we, we could get a dog in it? Sure, why not? <laughs> It'll make it more relatable. If we have the budget, maybe a cat as well. Oh, no, no. People don't like cats. Oh, fair Mar A lot of market research. Good. What's the book called? Uh, it's called Ulysses. So that's your, your elevator pitch for Ulysses. So the, the main beats are, takes place in Dublin, yep. over the course of 24 hours, mm -hmm. based on the Odyssey by Homer. Yes. Right. And I think that's probably what most people think Ulysses is. Yeah, and my naive impression, never having read the book and just having read a bit about the book, is that the correspondence will be pretty close. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, there's a sort of an analogue of the Cyclops and all the different creatures in the Odyssey. Um, but from talking to you, uh, I've come to find out that it's a little more nuanced than that. Oh, spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. Well, if you've ever picked up an annotation or a reading guide to Ulysses, you'll see that, that they are generally all nicely organized into chapters that have names that are all taken from the Odyssey. But when you open your edition of Ulysses, whichever edition you may have chosen, you will not see those episode titles that correspond to characters and events in the Odyssey. So... You have this book that is ostensibly meant to be about Homer's Odyssey. Mm -hmm. And there's no monsters in it. <sighs> Nary a sea monster to be had. That's a big letdown. Mm -hmm. So, well, that'll cut down on the budget when we make the movie. Anyway, um, uh, so you have to have like a second book to go with the book Ulysses to access. The, or a podcast. Or a podcast. Or a blog. Yeah, all right. Please check out our blog at <laughs> bloomsandbarnacles.com. Gosh. So, <laughs> but what I don't understand is... Where where then do these uh, these lists come from? And how do we know that they, they're real and they're not made up by some bogus academic? Well, the other <laughs> the other thing they're they're the only bogus academic they're made up by is, is James Joyce, and I don't think that's how he sees himself. Good. Good. So here's the fun thing: if you read an annotation, which a lot of people do, it's not a terrible idea. We recommend a few in our previous episode. If you're you're looking for a recommendation. Not only will you see the episode titles that correspond to the Odyssey, but at the start of each chapter, you will see this long list of other symbols that are connected with that chapter. Um, some of which are, you know, pertinent to the story. Like they'll tell you the, the the setting and the time that they take place. But then you'll see other ones like a corresponding organ or color or art or rhetorical technique. You might be thinking, oh, is this something that, yeah, some dusty old academic came up with? Or is the annotator just getting really creative or offering their own insight? But as I've already spoiled for you, they were invented by James Joyce himself. When you read Ulysses, thankfully, at the beginning of each chapter, it doesn't just say, 
These are the themes and symbols that you'll find in this chapter. So it seems like like a breadcrumb trail. Like, would you be able, would you be able to figure them out yourself if you didn't have the annotation? It depends on which ones. Like, if you're talking about the rhetorical technique, you, you might be able to figure some of those out. Although looking through them, like some of them are always surprising. But things like the scene and the the time, I think some of that you could figure out from the reading. But like the the metaphorical organ that goes with each chapter, <laughs> yeah. I. No. Yeah. Maybe someone more clever than myself. It sounds like a kind of detail that if a person is reading the book for the first time, they, how desperately would they need to know this? Oh, not at all. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Most of it I did not know the first time I read the book. Um, the only thing I knew were the chapter titles, which I got from the Bloomsday book, and then was disappointed to find out they were not in my edition of Ulysses. Because there are no editions of Ulysses, as I said. Right. So these come from something called a schema. How do you feel when you hear the word schema, Dermot? Itchy. <laughs> I think I have an ointment for that. Okay. King of the dad jokes strikes again. <laughs> <laughs> so a schema is a is a fun academic word that, uh, and for our for our purposes here, it means a, a plan that Joyce laid out. To in part to help him write the book because Ulysses is a big complicated thing, but it's also something he used to explain the book as sort of a little roadmap for the book to people that uh, were in his literary circles in the the 1920s. It's what's what interests me about this is it's obviously something that was important to him, mm -hmm. but it wasn't important enough to be like directly alluded to in a foot you know in the body of the book itself. Yeah. And, um, so it's it's almost something that's like uh, like a substrate or a, a invisible layer mm -hmm. that that you know he needed yeah. in the creation of the book, but that you don't necessarily need to read the book. Right. Yeah. Well, I think too when it comes to Joyce, that everything you need to know isn't necessarily in the book. Mm. He makes you work really hard to get the information that you need to understand it. Joyce will give you as much as you work for, and the the schema. The, the information in the schema, I think you could get without the schema, but you'd really have to work a lot harder. Yeah. This schemata, which is the plural of schema for all you awesome word nerds out there, the schemata weren't really po popularized until the, the 1930s by a man named Stuart Gilbert, who was a friend of Joyce's. Gilbert wrote a book called Ulysses, A Study, which is one of the first Ulysses guides to come out. Mm -hmm. Gilbert lifted those titles and included them in his book, as a framework as well, as a way to organize it so you knew which section of the book he was talking about. These schemata are still popular today amongst Ulysses scholars and enthusiasts, basically because they're really easy to follow, and they do provide a framework for analysis, both of themes, of literary styles, and other things that we'll discuss about in future episodes as we go through each of these chapters. But now it's warning time, because there's a dark side to the schemata. Oh dear. It's not really that dark. I would just say beware to first timers because you're probably going into it knowing that it's related to the Odyssey. But the schemata overall probably offer too much info. This was something that Tom and I talked about in our interview is that some of the annotations too just offer too much information. Mm. Um, you don't necessarily need all the information to understand it. If you don't know which episode is linked to the esophagus, it won't matter. 
That would have been my guess. Yeah. But it's it's good to have it. But Ulysses really is a book that you you can read a bunch of times and always get something new out of it. Each time, if you're like me, you'll say that's the last time I've read it, and then you'll keep coming back, which is also my uh, relationship to Game of Thrones. So. <laughs> It is perfectly possible to have a fruitful reading of Ulysses without all the knowledge from the Gilbert schema or the other schema. There were two schemata, because why have one when you can have two? <laughs> How are you feeling right now? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, one to use and one to lose, maybe. So uh, what was the first one? Hopefully. The Lenati, the yeah. Lenati schema. Yeah. Um, he gave to his friend Carlo Lenati, which is why it's called the Lenati schema. Much less complex. Okay. Uh, the Gilbert schema is way more complicated and is the one that's that's better known and is the one that's usually referred to in annotations. Yeah, okay. Anyway, before I get too lost in, in this, yes, Dermot, it is possible to read Ulysses without really knowing anything about the schema. Or Homer. Or Homer. One more thing about the schemata is Joyce really pushed it as a marketing tool. Dermot, you kind of hinted at this before. Mm -hmm. This is This was the most... This is this was the most interesting thing to me when I was researching this. If you are to talk about what Ulysses is without referencing the Odyssey, how would you describe it? Me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so okay, we're let's get back in our elevator. Oh no. Okay. I'm the publisher, God, yeah. and you're going to you're going to pitch me Ulysses without referring to the Odyssey. <laughs> Hi, young man. I'm an important publisher. Yes, Mr. Publisher person. I'm a woman. Oh, Ms. Publisher. Um, yeah, I, I would think I would pitch it as just, uh, well, it's... Uh, so you got a novel for me, eh? Yeah, these people walk around Dublin talking a lot. <laughs> well, <laughs> what do they talk about? Uh, art, poetry, um, their uh, fears about their marriages, um, the British complaining about the church, uh, lots of sex, well, dirty stuff, and you know, because of his 1920 and his obscene, so... Yeah, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think he'd be too excited by the description, honestly. I, I'm, I'm actually more interested in this description than the first one. Because <laughs> I've always kind of felt like the it's loosely based on the Odyssey thing felt a little gimmicky. Yeah. I think it's important to remember that Joyce wrote Ulysses, and while in 2018 we can enjoy the hindsight of seeing it as this enormous artistic achievement, that in its day... If you receive this at a publishing house, how would you sell this? I mean, even even nowadays, if you look at movies, if you, you see a movie that's a little too far outside what a typical movie is, sometimes it ends up with a trailer that doesn't accurately represent it because someone has to sell it. Hmm. If you want people to read your novel, you have to have someone to sell it. And on top of that, Ulysses was banned as obscene at this point, as we mentioned already. So not only do you have something that's very hard to describe and market, you have something that, you know, is probably going to upset people. So what do you do with this? And tying it to one of the greatest works in the Western canon was one way of dealing with that. That his loose framework that he came up with for organizing it, that was more of a thematic framework than a narrative framework, became something that was really heavily emphasize, especially in Gilbert's book, which from my understanding of it, Joyce more or less saying he dictated it to him would, would probably be too much, but he was heavily involved in it. Uh, Gilbert's name ends up on it, but Joyce was very, very heavily involved in the writing of it, and he he approved the, the final draft. 
When we look at the Homeric parallels in Ulysses, just remember they were a frame. Probably, if anything, they would distract you perhaps from more important themes and uh, factors to know about, uh, like the Irish Catholicism or the British politics. Mm -hmm. or, or Hamlet. Or Hamlet, right, right. I think we mentioned Catholicism. Knowing, the, knowing your, your Hamlet and knowing your Bible are going to help you a lot. Knowing the Odyssey will as well. Like, there's one chapter called Aeolus, which in the Odyssey is a chapter about a literal bag of wind that Odysseus gets. Right. And it, the, the chapter in Ulysses is set in, a, in an office in a, a newspaper, and it's a bunch of journalists kind of talking over each other. Right, so, so it's, it's a joke. So they're figurative yeah. windbags. Right. But in the language he chooses, too, is very wind-oriented throughout the whole thing. Okay. So knowing that story in the Odyssey really, really well um, will only get you so far through that chapter. It'll yeah. add something to your reading, but knowing a lot, knowing a lot of other things will get you even further. And I do think, too, if, I think I already touched on this, but I, at the risk of repeating myself, if Ulysses was just a one-to-one -one retelling of Homer in 1904 Dublin, I think it would be a lot less interesting book. Right. I, I don't think it would be the enduring masterpiece that it is now. Yeah, it has to stand on its own merits with yeah. without that. You know. So having said all that, knowing about the Odyssey is still something that will add to your understanding of Ulysses. So let's talk about the first chapter of Ulysses and how it relates to the Odyssey. All right, so I think the best way to proceed with talking about the Odyssey is to give a short summary. So this is a summary I wrote. You can find it on our blog, bloomsandbarnacles.com. And this is a summary of the first two chapters of the Odyssey, which correspond to the first chapter of Ulysses, which is called Telemachus. There we go. Telemachus is the son of Odysseus, the king of Ithaca, who disappeared after the Trojan War. Telemachus's mother, Penelope, is beset by suitors who are basically camped out in their house, eating all their food and drinking all their booze. Enter Athena, who shows up in disguise and persuades Telemachus to make a rousing speech to muster support to go looking for Odysseus. The suitors shout back. Telemachus is discouraged. Athena, in disguise, lifts his spirits while he broods on a beach. Telemachus and supporters take to the high seas. Adventure! <laughs> and stop motion animation. And mechanical owls. Oh, yes. We love the mechanical owls. <laughs> and if, that if mechanical guys, owl is my favorite character probably, from Greek we probably, mythology. We might have some literary people who have no idea what we're talking about. It's Ray Harryhausen's uh, stop-motion animation from the 1960s and 70s. Wonderful. Uh, the Clash of the Titans, I Love believe. It. Is yeah, night, the Clash of the Titans. Bubo the Owl. My Lawrence Olivier was in that movie. For the, and I think John Gielgud might have been in that movie okay. too. I remember watching it with my dad when I was a little kid, yeah. and I love the owl. <laughs> <laughs> so that sounds exactly like the first chapter of Ulysses. Does it? No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gaslighting me there. Was... No, don't oh. say that word on my podcast. Oh, all right. I don't want to talk about serious things. <laughs> no, that proves my point, though, that yeah. that's, that's what happens in the, the part of the Odyssey that corresponds to the first chapter of Ulysses. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's 
pretty different. So what can the Odyssey tell us about this first chapter? Do not look at me. (laughs) (laughs) The thing you can take away from this is it helps you understand the characters in the first episode. Hmm. It will tell you a lot about their personalities and how they relate to one another, as well as their character motivations. So let's talk about this first episode who so let's i want to see what you know who who are the characters in that first episode in the odyssey no oh and the, i'm not in, yeah, i'm not quizzing ulysses. you ulysses. Ulysses. Yeah. <laughs> well we've got the two, three chaps on the tower mm-hmm. um book mulligan uh, and uh, deedless and haynes mm-hmm. and uh they're having their little mock catholic mass on the roof that's just book mulligan. Uh, book mulligan and we've been on that roof so it's kind of interesting to read that passage mm-hmm. so uh, so they're right next to the sea. I mean, there's, you've got the wonderful view of the ocean from there. Mm-hmm. You're right out. Um, mm-hmm. There's a swimming spot. Mm-hmm. Um, the son of Odysseus, uh, Telemachus, kind of might suggest some sort of father-son dynamic, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, they're about to go off on some sort of journey or an adventure of some mm-hmm. kind. So other than that, I, yeah. I wouldn't want to push it too hard. So in Joyce's schema, he says that Stephen Dedalus is the... Um, is a correspondence to Telemachus, who is a son figure, mm-hmm. whose father is absent. Now, Stephen has a father. His father's name is Simon Dedalus, um, and he's still alive. But we do learn pretty quickly that Stephen's mother has died. Mm. However, and in the, the Odyssey, people are kind of assuming that Odysseus is dead. He's been gone for like 20 years. Like he's Absentee know. father. Yeah, but they're kind. Of, I think that Telemachus and Penelope are kind of holding out hope that he'll come back. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, because Penelope's wealthy, all these young men want to come and lay claim to her lands, and they can only do so by marriage. Well, in the in the Odyssey too, one of their main grievances against her is she said that she she's weaving a she was going to weave a death shroud for somebody, and she said, "Well, by the time I finish weaving it, I'll choose a suitor." And they got mad because they found out she would weave it every day and then unweave it at night. And so she she was taking an extra long time. And they were like, so therefore she has to marry one of us. That's not fair. That doesn't happen in Ulysses either. Mm -hmm. Stephen's mother is definitively dead. Um, We learn that she's, she's dead and he's haunted by her death because he's guilty that he did not pray at her bedside. She asked him to pray at her bedside and Stephen refused. And that, yeah, he carries a lot of guilt from this. Right. Does that have a, any resonance with Joyce in his real life? That is a real thing that happened to Joyce. Wow. Uh, his mother died at a similar point in his life, and he and his brother Stanislaus both would refuse to pray at her bedside because they had cast off Catholicism. Right. Yeah. So Telemachus is a much more faithful son. He loves his father, and he doesn't want his mother to be be stuck with one of these horrible suitors in large part because he believes his father's going to come back so they're they're kind of diff- different they're both young they're both naive uh buck mullion calls stephen the jejun jesuit mm-hmm. which jejun if you look it up means naive yeah. who over the course of their own story they gain wisdom as they go on a journey now <laughs> telemachus goes out to talk to other kings of greece to figure out where his father is, Stephen ends up getting punched in the face outside of a brothel. (laughs) So, I know which one I prefer. 
yeah, there are a lot of surface level differences. Like you can probably point to more differences. Again, Stephen lost his mother, not his father, and Simon Daedalus is not exactly beset by lady suitors. Hmm. Um, there are reasons for that we'll get into in another episode. The main thing to take away, though, is that Telemachus and Stephen are both characters that guide the opening moves in the story that it belongs to someone else. They both think they're the main character in the story, but the story bears someone else's name. So there's a great quote here I'm going to read from a, a literary scholar named Hugh Kenner. And he says, Stephen thinks he is in a book called Hamlet and never discovers it's really called Ulysses and that he is a supporting actor, not the lead. Hmm. So there's a father-son dynamic because Bloom will come in later. Bloom doesn't show up till the fourth chapter of the book. And Bloom is the Ulysses. Like, this is really Leopold Bloom's book. Right. But it's called Bloom's Day and not Daedalus's Day. Right. That Stephen and Bloom develop this, this father-son dynamic at the climax of Ulysses, which is a solid 600 pages into that book. So they don't, these two characters don't meet for 600 pages. Yeah. Oh. But they're, they're kind of aware of each other. I mean, Bloom is friends with Stephen's father. It's likely Stephen has an idea who he is. Right. Like, but they don't really connect until very late in the book. Wow. That, that might be something that you and I will not discuss for years to come <laughs> because it's a very long book. Join us in the year 2022 for Frank, the thrilling Frank, Frank Delaney died before he ever got there. That is so sad. Yeah. He said, he said that if he'd, it would have taken him 30 years to complete the podcast as he envisioned it. God. We're talking about Frank Delaney's Rejoice podcast, which is another podcast about Ulysses that you should listen to. He goes to the book page by page until he... He's sometimes paragraph by paragraph, but his episodes are also like seven minutes long. Some of them are longer. Anyway. Yeah, so putting Stephen in the Telemachus role really primes the readers for that eventual meeting. And it also sets, sets up all the father and son metaphors, which are packed into every single chapter of this book. Mm. Let's move on then to Buck Mulligan. Buck Mulligan is mainly corresponding to Antinous who was one of the most boisterous suitor of Penelope's. So there's a scene where Telemachus confronts all the suitors and they all yell back that his mother is a deceiving weaver. <laughs> a deceiver weaver. She's, deceit, she's weaving a web of deceit when she said she was weaving something else. Where <laughs> so Buck Mulligan's correspondence to Antinous is a little more direct. How would you describe Buck Mulligan's relationship to Stephen based on what we've talked about? Uh, not very good. <laughs> very hard to describe. Mixture of like frenemies, uh, sort of grudging mutual respect, fear. It's, it's not a healthy relationship, I would say. Yeah. And I think Buck Mulligan is the older of the two. You know, Stephen's the junior. Would that be correct? I believe so, yeah. Mm. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. It certainly feels like it anyway from all, all the descriptions you've given. Books much more boisterous and outgoing, stately, plump, and all the rest of it. And Stephen seems like very tightly wound up. It kind of reminds me of me when I was 21. You know, I, I, I was horrified <laughs> to think I might have been more like Stephen than any character in the book. Yeah. I've felt that way about myself, too. Oh, there we go. That, that's basically Buck Mulligan. Um, I think antipathy is the first word that, that comes to mind. I've seen them as kind of frenemies for a long time, but I think the enemy is is much more pronounced yeah. than the friend part. Yep. Stephen really doesn't say anything positive about Mulligan the whole book. Yeah. 
I always like when Mulligan shows up throughout the book because it, it, it means things are about to go sideways, right. but it's clear that he's reigning all over Stephen Dedalus's parade. One of the last lines of this chapter, Stephen directly refers to him as a usurper, which pretty much sums up how he sees him. So Mulligan is a guy who has taken up residence in a tower on which Stephen pays the rent, and then he eats all of Stephen's food mocks Stephen, patronizes him. Stephen finds out that he's described, insultingly described his, his deceased mother as beastly dead and then doesn't deny it. And then at the very end, demands the key to the tower from Stephen. And it's in that moment when he decides he won't return to the tower. He feels he's been pushed out by this, this interloper. Usurper. And Joyce goes out of his way to attach a lot of Greek Greek things to Mulligan. He states that his outright goal is to Hellenize Ireland. That's his goal. He wants to make Ireland more Greek. Good luck with that. <laughs> Let's see here. He insists, uh, one of the first, oh, before we get into that, uh, one of the first odd words that pops up here is in this paragraph that describes Mulligan standing atop the tower performing a mock mass. And he says, he peered sideways up and gave a long, low whistle of call, then paused a while in rapt attention, his even white teeth glistening here and there with gold points. Chrysostomus. Two strong, shrill whistles answered through the calm. So most of that makes sense, and then there's this one random Greek word. So I, I'm not going to get into that too much. It references a number of things, all of which are Greek. It means golden-mouthed in Greek. For our purposes here, it's meant to draw a direct line between Buck Mulligan and you know, Hellenic influences. Mm. And then a few lines down, he says to Stephen, the mockery of it, he said gaily, your absurd name and ancient Greek, meaning Daedalus or, or Daedalus, as you say. Right. So right off the back, we see a lot of association with Mulligan and, and things which are Greek. And he even points out his own name. My name is, he says on the next page, my name is absurd too. Malachi Mulligan, two dactyls, but it has a Hellenic ring, hasn't it? Although Malachi or Malachi is actually a Hebrew name. And then he says, we must go to Athens. Will you come if I get the ant to fork out 20 quid? So he, <laughs> he's literally trying to take Stephen to Greece. Right. And on the next um, he talks about the sea, the, the snot green sea, the scrotum tightening sea, epi oinopa ponton, ah, deadless the Greeks, I must teach you, you must read them in the original, thalata, thalata, she is our great sweet mother, come and look. And he says this as he's looking down on the sea, and the thalata means sea in Greek. So he's literally now just speaking Greek to Stephen. The famous I, uh, Homer description mm -hmm. of the ocean was the wine dark. So. Well, that's what, yeah, the epi or nopa ponton is what, is what that is. It means right. the wine dark sea. Okay. Yeah, yeah. which... And he turns into snot. <laughs> the snot green scrotum tightening sea. Yeah. yeah. So later on in the chapter then two, Haynes shows up and they're talking about the tower and... Buck Mulligan says of the tower, Billy Pitt had them built, Buck Mulligan said, when the French were on the sea, but ours is the omphalos. Omphalos means navel, mm -hmm. but not like re related to the navy. Right. Belly button. Right. That's because he sees it. There, There's a lot of stuff in that too, but he sees their tower as the, the focal point of this new artistic 
movement to Hellenize yeah. Ireland. This being the Martello Tower, the the kind of yeah. and Billy Pitt, William Pitt, the prime mm -hmm. minister who had them built yeah. to defend Ireland and Britain from mm -hmm. the French. But there's a line in the Odyssey where Athena refers to the island where Odysseus is stranded as the navel of the sea. So hmm. I'm assuming Joyce took that all directly. Right. So there are allusions mm -hmm. littered throughout yeah. the chapter to former. They there are, and they're mainly attached to Buck Mulligan. Yep. So that is important to note. And how about Haynes? What do you know about Haynes? Poor Haynes. Oh, <laughs> he's so dorky. <laughs> Haynes is a, um, a a British person who uh, has an affection for Ireland mm -hmm. and fancies himself uh, an Irish person. And you know, nothing wrong with that, but uh, it can rub some people up the wrong way. Um, and it's probably a topic for a totally separate it, podcast. It is, and it will be. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's mm -hmm. so he's kind of caught between two worlds where he's not fully Irish and not maybe not fully British either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can talk more about who Haynes is later on, which mm -hmm. is an interesting story in and of itself. Haynes doesn't really have a direct connection to any specific character in the Odyssey. He's just presented as yet one more usurper. So Stephen only has to deal with two usurpers in his tower, whereas Telemachus had a whole, like, I'm trying to think of a, what a, you'd call that space. A small army of invaders. Yeah, or, you know, who were just yeah. like a bunch of Ugh. drunken jerks who were eating all this food. and Yeah, you know, Greek frat boys. Athena shows up in the, I think, the form of a Greek sailor. It's just like, why are all these guys in here? And he's like, my mom doesn't tell them to leave. She just ignores them. They're eating all our, they're, they're, they're in our fridge eating all our food. It's disgusting. To use a really old internet meme. <laughs> so Haynes is just kind of one more usurper. And really what he does is he kind of primes Stephen to think about history's role in Stephen's life. So he says, um, when he talks about the English mistreatment of the Irish, I suppose history is to blame. And that that's really connecting him to the next episode with, it's called Nestor with Mr. Deasy, who's very proud um, pro-British right. headmaster who talks a lot about history because, according to the Gilbert schema, history is the main theme of that. Oh, which is, okay. According to Joyce. Joyce, I hope I made it clear Joyce wrote those schema. They weren't Yeah, invented. Gilbert didn't just make it all up out no. of his head. No, it was Sullivan that did that. And then they wrote South Pacific. Gilbert and Sullivan oh, wrote a bunch no. of musicals. Oh, that, was a, that, that was a joke that wasn't funny. So there's one more character that we forgot. Yes. Old Gummy Granny, oh. the milk woman, who's later <laughs> portrayed as Old Gummy Granny uh, when she pops up to encourage Joyce to fight the English soldiers in Nighttown. Good. I feel really angry about her treatment because she, this little old lady, uh, you know, probably barefoot and wearing a little raggy shawl, brings milk to these guys in that tower. On must have been, you know, hell of a walk up there, and they don't even pay her for the milk. They pay, right? her, they pay her. They pay her some of it, but, but they. Yeah. yeah. I mean, come on, lads. Come on. Mm -hmm. Pay the old lady for your milk. <laughs> this is a sad. <laughs> you can rent a Martello Tower. You can pay a little old mm -hmm. lady for her milk. Yeah. So the when well okay. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm. This is the hill I'll die on. You know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, I have I have thoughts on that too, but I'm I just think I'm researching that right now, so mm -hmm. I'm just like. Oh, I, I'm going to say, I want to save that for another episode. All right. <laughs> so the parallel that Joyce gives to the milkwoman is to Athena, specifically the scene in which she appears to Telemachus on the beach in the form of mentor who acts as a mentor to him because 
Telemachus tries to get all the suitors out, and they're just like, go to hell, Telemachus. We're not leaving. Uh, there's free food and drink here. We're happy to stay. So he gets really sad. There's, and there's a you and mama joke in there. I'm not going to go there. Keep going. You get, yeah, okay. Um, thanks. So Telemachus gets really sad and walks sadly on a beach. Mm-hmm. And then Athena's like, dang it. So she she has to go down then and then again disguises herself. And it's just like, come on, Telemachus. You, you got got to buck up, scout. Mm-hmm. Come on, you little soldier. You can do it, buckaroo. <laughs> Whatever the Greek is for girl up there. Do um, yeah. No, she's 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 much nicer to him than that. But she really motivates him, and then he goes back and like gives a rousing speech, and then like gathers up a bunch of people, and then heads out to find Nestor, the king of Pylos, to get advice because he's the wisest man, apparently, and he has a bunch of horses. Anyway, that's Gummy Granny's correspondence in the schema. Okay. It is the one I understand the least. Because, again, Athena is this powerful goddess in disguise who kind of gives Telemachus this push that he needs to be more courageous. And the milk woman is very humble. Obsequious is a, a word I used to describe her when I wrote about her. Particularly to Haynes, right? She's... To all three of them. Well, Joyce kind of, or not Joyce, Stephen chafes that she's, she's much more um, subservient to... Um, Mulligan and Haynes because he thinks she can tell that they're wealthy and she knows he's a medical student he's got money and she just ignores Stephen and he sees that as kind of a symbol of the way that Ireland supports wealthy people like Mulligan and that they bow before the English like Haynes but they totally ignore an artist like Stephen yeah now how this poor milk woman is supposed to know all that I don't know but um you know there you have it and that's yeah. We'll we'll talk we'll talk about her more because I I think we she's can, we can talk more about that in the future episode. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah, yeah. The Irish um, attitude to this day, you know. So right, yeah. So these are all topics for later on. But uh, it's hard for me to see how she's Athena because she doesn't yeah. and she doesn't encourage Stephen to do anything. She encourages Stephen to be annoyed about the <laughs> you know imbalance in their tower. Right. She doesn't really motivate him in any way. Yeah. So. I turn to the book Rejoice by Anthony Burgess to explain this. Oh, author of A Clockwork Orange. Yeah. In case anyone doesn't um, know, I'm sure you do. Yeah, this is quite a, b- a bit different from mm-hmm. Clockwork Orange. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so this is what he says. He says that the milk woman mirrors Athena in that, and this is, I quote, the sacramental potion of the day's beginning cannot be taken without her. So this is in the form of milky tea. The Hellenized Mulligan, so Mulligan who's accepted the Greekness and his follower, Haynes, they drink milky tea, while Stephen, who represents the Irish artist, takes his tea black mm. and rejects the Hellenization of Mulligan. <laughs> oh, God. In the form. <laughs> so do you have some thoughts about oh, that? Oh, jeez. How old is he, 21? Yeah. 21, 22. Yeah, there you I think go. he's 22. Good enough, yeah. I, yeah, and I, I think he, well, I think, too, there's a more, like, there's a practical service level of that where he's just like, oh, we now, to be really fair, I drink, for the milk, I, I drink my tea black, um, uh-huh. but I'm lactose intolerant, I, so, you know, there's a good yeah. reason for it. But. <laughs> <laughs> now, was that reaction where, so Dermot actually leaned forward and put his, his forehead in his, his palm. Was that because you found Stephen's reaction immature? Yeah, a little symbolic pretend, rejection? Pretentious moi kind of, yeah, yeah, he's, oh, like, yeah. he's a little full of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but he's, 20, he's 21. Stephen's a precious flower. So that 
that pretty much sums it up. I'm hoping to turn this into a series of of podcasts about the Odyssey and Ulysses. So we'll talk about Nestor next. I don't know when that will be, but this is, I also wrote about this on our blog, um, bloomsofbarnacles.com. So you can find it there. And I will put a link to that in the episode notes. It also has a really fantastic cartoon. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the picture you drew for this? So um, for those of you maybe didn't listen to our first episode, Dermot is the artist of our blog. I do all the writing and research. Dermot makes it beautiful. So you want to? So he did a um, a cartoon of to go with this blog post, and you can also see that. Uh, bloomsandbarticles.com and the oh the article is titled Ulysses and the Odyssey colon Telemachus yeah actually you probably just punch that into Google and it'll turn it up there can't be that many articles Mm -hmm. with that title and the illustration is uh it's Daedalus 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 walking down the quays in Dublin and he's been uh haunted by the specter of Homer Homer's ghost is walking right behind him just hovering in the air like a Scooby-Doo character and he wouldn't have got it. He would have gotten away with it too if it hadn't been for those pesky kids. Or that uh, pesky mulligan. Yeah. And there's a, the Hapenny Bridge in the background. So it's actually, I think it's Merchant's Key. It's the actual spot mm-hmm. in Dublin. If you want to, to Google Street View that, see how mm-hmm. accurate I was or I wasn't. So it's a nice drawing. So mm-hmm. if you want to check if it out. If he wasn't accurate, there is no need to tell us on Twitter. Please, please don't. You know, <laughs> you, you can, you, if the lamppost's in the wrong position, you know, I don't care. I'm not going to reconstruct the city block by block. It's not going to well, that's, you know, that's really sloppy. Yeah, isn't that laziness? Okay. Uh, is there anything else we need to say on this topic? No, I think that's good. I, I think we yeah. got it. Yeah, don't get bogged down by minutia. I mean, it's... it's oh, it that, that like... is not in the spirit of the novel. Oh, really? Really? <laughs> no. I think, well... I, you know, the parts it, I've made you read are, I, I are think, the... I think the enjoyment of language should be the first mm-hmm. thing, you know, and you probably wouldn't get it. I've read this kind of... Some, some of the passages and... What I get from it is just enjoy the, the, the word play and the language. And, you know, mm-hmm. when you read it for the seventh time, you'll probably start picking up on the minutia, you know. Mm-hmm. I would say to anyone who's thinking about rereading it, you get a lot more the second time. Yeah. I have referred to it as it's like repeating ninth grade. It's way easier the second time. <laughs> I did not repeat ninth grade, but that's my understanding of that situation. Okay. Anything else? Nah, I'm covered. All right, then we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. We're going to have another podcast out in about two weeks, so we hope you can join us then. Be sure to check out the Blooms and Barnacles blog at bloomsandbarnacles.com for a new essay every Monday by Kelly with original artwork by me. You can email any questions or comments to bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com or you can follow us on Twitter at BarnacleCast. You can also follow us on Facebook. Just search Blooms and Barnacles podcast and you'll find the public group there. Just answer the questions and Kelly will approve you. Until next time, bye.